Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. If you go to an art museum, contemporary, encyclopedic, local, whatever, odds are most of the art showing there was made by white men. Even if you leave out the Renaissance painters and the Dutch masters or whatever, still, it remains in 2019 uncommon to see a solo show by a woman or a person of color. That was even more true in 1985, when some of New York's most prominent galleries showed less than 10% women artists. Others were showing no women at all. Enter the Gorilla Girls. That's gorilla with a U and an E, by the way. They're an anonymous collective of artists, and pretty much all of them were living in New York at the time. They decided the best way to fight discrimination in the art world was to make art about the discrimination. Paste it onto the walls all over lower Manhattan, put on a gorilla mask, and shout it out loud with a bullhorn in front of the Museum of Modern Art. The reactions from gallerists and curators were a mix of anger and annoyance, but things changed, slowly. The Gorilla Girls have entered their third decade as a collective, morphing in membership as time has passed. They still make art for the streets they have also shown in galleries and museums. And I got to talk with one of their founding members, Kata Kolvitz. That's not her real name, of course. They are anonymous, but we'll get into that. Let's hear the conversation. Kata Kolwitz of the Gorilla Girls, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. Really great to be here. So each of the Gorilla Girls, I, th- I guess with the exception of one, in the course of their, I don't know, Gorilla Girl initiation, chooses the name of an artist uh, who was a woman who was uh, underrecognized in part for that reason. Can you tell me about the artist whose name you've taken? Yes. Um, Kata Kolwitz was a German artist very political, didn't believe in selling things for huge amounts of money, so she would always make cheap prints that she could give away and sell for a little bit. She did work about workers, about women, some stuff about sex, um, all kinds of things. And she lived from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century. And was she someone who's name you pulled out of a hat of worthy candidates or (laughs) someone you picked specifically? It actually was a great thing in the beginning because people were discovering artists they'd never heard of and taking their names. You know, it was a time when a lot of people were searching out these artists from history. So it was really exciting for people to choose their pseudonyms. And today it still is. I mean, when new people come in the group, which happens all the time, they have to choose and it's a great process for them. For me... I connect to Kata Kolwitz because, you know, I'm also a political artist, and I believe in a lot of what she believed in. So she was an artist and an activist her whole life, and that's true for me, too. Were you present at the dawn of the Guerrilla Girls? Oh, yeah. I'm one of the founders of the Guerrilla Girls, and I've been involved with just about everything we've done, deeply involved over the last 34 years. Was there like a day where you were at a all-night diner or something 
<laughs> and somebody said, wouldn't it be great if we all dot, dot, dot? Kinda, kinda. I mean, what actually happened was the art world in New York City was very fairly small at that time, and there were almost no opportunities for women or artists of color. The gallery showed like one, two, three, museums, the same thing. And we were a bunch of artists who felt this, you know, women artists in New York felt this very strongly. So what happened was the Museum of Modern Art in 1984 had an exhibition called An International Survey of Painting and Sculpture. And it was supposed to be the very best, the very most important work of the day. And, and it I, actually came with a pronunciation guide that you had. Yes. Say, International. I, <laughs> para, para. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, anyway, sorry for that. <laughs> dramatization. I think they earned it. I think they earned it. Go ahead. Okay. But in any case, um, there was a group that formed not any of us who would be, you know, eventually Guerrilla Girls, who went to this demonstration outside of MoMA. And we already knew things were bad. But, you know, I'm walking around with um, another person who uh, became a Guerrilla Girl, and it was pathetic. Nobody cared about this protest. Women art, people thought women just didn't make good art, and they didn't care about women protesting. Oh, a bunch of complainers. Oh, they're just no good, blah, blah, blah. People just went right into the museum. They ignored us. Some people angrily shouted. And that was the aha moment because it was so clear. There had to be a better way, an in-your-face, more contemporary, um, media-savvy strategy to tell people something they really didn't know and convince them that this was happening. The Gorilla Girls Guide to Behaving Badly, which you have to do most of the time in the world as we know it. Be a loser. The world of art doesn't have to be an Olympics where a few win and everyone else is forgotten. The art market and its hyper-competitive celebrity culture makes everyone but the stars feel like failures. But there's another world out there that's not about raging egos, a world of artistic cooperation and collaboration. That's the one we join and we invite you to join it too. Let's make trouble together. Be crazy. Political art or activism that points to something and says this is bad is just preaching to the converted. Instead, try to change people's minds and do it in some unforgettable way. A trick we learned is humor helps you fly under the radar if you can get people who disagree with you to laugh at an issue you have a hook right into their brain. Once there, you have a much better chance to convert them. It seems bold to me, and I wonder if this was a choice that you discussed at the beginning, that your initial uh, targets, for lack of a better word, included people who you might describe as complicit, as well as people who were what you might describe as like perpetrators, which is to say you, you did things like, say, these artists show in galleries which, rather than simply saying these galleries? Well, this is, this is our philosophy. You know, I don't know on day one whether I could have said, oh, this is our philosophy. But the idea was to go after, in a very out there way, one group in the art world after another. And what we were doing is what we still do today, basically. I mean, we've 
operated under the same paradigm from the beginning, getting, you know, deeper, deepening the critique, hopefully, you know, definitely um, deepening the visuals and the visual style and where we do it and and um, how we do it. But a perfect example of, of this idea we developed is our most well-known poster, which is called um, Do Women Have to Be Naked to Get into the Met Museum? That's the headline of it. And then it says underneath, less than 5% of the artists in the modern art sections are women, but 85% of the nudes are female. So, and then there's a picture of Ang's Odalisque, this old, you know, beautiful naked painting um, with a gorilla mask head on her. It's a great okay. picture. It, I, I both is originally is a great picture and also it's a great picture with the gorilla mask on. Thanks. But the thing is, we could have done a poster and probably other people have done a poster or something that just says, there are not enough women artists on the walls of the Metropolitan Museum. And if we had done that poster, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. We somehow figured out this completely different idea using really advertising strategies and things like that where you the headline and the and the other copy each add to each other the picture adds to that and I dare anyone who's seen this poster of ours and actually looked at it to go into any museum ever and not think about what's on the walls. Well, in 1984, the Museum of Modern Art reopened after a renovation with an exhibition that was entitled An International Survey of Painting and Sculpture. And out of uh, close to 200 artists, fewer than 17 were women, and there were almost no artists of color. Uh, and it was a little annoying because the curator of the show said in the press, this was Kiniston McShine, that anyone who was not an included in his show should rethink his career. And just his use of that pronoun, rethink his career, struck us. And we just pushed away at that. I think there was the general assumption at the time that if there were no women or artists of color in the mainstream art history books, it meant that their work did not rise to the quality necessary. Well, we knew that wasn't true. You were anonymous from the beginning. You know, there is a, in professional art, there is a commercial imperative to make your name known. It's very difficult to make money making art without having a known name for obvious reasons. So given that you were a group of artists, all of whom had that interest in promoting your own names in order to promote your own work, why did you decide to be anonymous? Well, in the beginning, honestly, we were a diverse group, um, different levels of art world success, different um, ethnic backgrounds, um, different gender identities, etc. And we, we really did it because we were afraid our careers would be hurt. And not everyone in the group had a, had that happening, but a bunch did have that happening. But we immediately found out that it was part of the secret of our success because, for one thing, you couldn't benefit from it. You know, maybe now these days some people, you know, early on people do want to do that, but it's a delicious, wonderful secret to have. And now I don't think anyone cares who the gorilla girls are. I mean, you know, maybe for one second, but it doesn't really mean anything because the gorilla girls themselves are are such a um, 
I don't want to say big thing, but such an entity these days that inspires people all over the place to try to do their own crazy creative kind of activism, or as um, one of our members calls it, creative complaining. (laughs) I mean, I think in part, it is in itself a preemptive of criticism that you could receive that you're only acting in your own self-interest or in the interests of self-promotion. I mean, as women artists, you benefit from an improvement in the lot of women's artists generally to some extent. But I could very easily see in 1985 when this was a new thing, someone saying, oh, she's only doing it so that she can get famous or so that she can extort her way into a gallery. Well, anyone who did come in with that idea didn't stay long. And, of course, being a guerrilla girl didn't preclude and doesn't preclude anybody from doing their own work. The only problem with that these days is we are so busy. We were in 40 exhibitions last year, many of them, uh, several of them one person, several of them ones that we designed, you know, or did a new project for, like at Tate Modern, we did the complaints department, or we just did something last year at Art Basel Hong Kong with a big zombie gorilla, and it was a participatory thing where people could go through Art Basel, this, you know, one of those horrible art fairs, and count the stuff that they saw on the walls and then bring it back to our installation and and hang up the results. And we used a quote from Confucius to kind of frame the whole thing in Chinese and English. And the English is, if you keep women out, they get resentful. And then we had all these stats about Art Basel Hong Kong last year and then asked people to count and put up their own thing for 2018. So There was a piece that I read about that I really enjoyed. And I don't remember, I believe it was in a museum that was a big chalkboard that said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it said, if you were a feminist, what would you complain about? Actually, we should have titled it that because we did title it I'm not a feminist, but if I were, this is what I would complain about, which that would be have been a little quicker, I think. But yeah, we've done this all over the world. We first did it in Ireland in uh, 2010 because we met a lot of women artists there who, who started talking by saying that. They would go, well, I'm not a feminist, but... And then they would go through this litany of crap, you know, like over and over and over. So we just thought that was so amazing. We wanted to give other people, since we know that feminism has been demonized for so long, that there are so many people who don't want to call themselves feminists, who believe in the tenets of feminism. It seems like part of the feminism you were espousing, even in the mid-1980s, was... Uh, an attempt to give people a different perspective on the idea of feminism, like tell them that feminism could encompass many tones of discourse, like ways of being in the world? Yeah, we believe that. I mean, we... We've always been intersectional feminists before there was a name for it, meaning we fight for human rights for all. 
and are interested in that. And we've done a lot of political work over the years, too, about all kinds of different subjects. We've taken on um, abortion, uh, anti-war stuff, um, did a collaboration with homeless women in New York where we... where they were the ones writing the stories, and we made posters out of them. We have a, a really poster. One of my favorite projects is one about hate speech through the ages, uh, which is called Disturbing the Peace, which we originally did in French and English in Montreal, and now we've done also all over the world in different languages. And it has all these um, guys from Confucius to Picasso to Rush Limbaugh uh, spouting all these horrible, horrible crap about women. And of course, when Trump came along, we added him to it as well. Were you and your colleagues satisfied right at the beginning? Oh, wow, like this is definitely, we did, get a, did a good job of we should do more of this? Yeah. I mean, that's basically what we did. We were shocked at the response. I mean, all hell broke loose in New York. Everyone was talking about this. Um, You know, angry people who were fingered on our posters were really pissed off. Um, Yeah, and that's essentially what we've done. We've just rolled this thing out all these years, always, you know, taking on new challenges, thinking up new challenges, et cetera. As a professional artist at the time, I'm sure a lot of your social group was also involved in the art world in whatever capacity. Did you find yourself like at dinner at somebody's house and they're talking about it and you're trying to figure out what your cover story is? (laughs) (laughs) That's happened. That still happens. I mean, you can sit down next to somebody and (laughs) like, what are you doing there? Kind of thing. Yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy. I once tried to go to a museum opening both as myself and as a gorilla girl. I would not recommend that. (laughs) I think it worked, but it was really bizarre. I did the same thing. I I once covered a natural disaster, a dam that was going to break both in my capacity as a reporter and in my capacity as Superman. (laughs) See? See? Having another identity is fantastic. It's liberating. It's um, it's fun. It's exciting. One time, um, recently, we were together and putting masks on to to do something. You know, um, our group now a game of volleyball. And you couldn't really recognize people once they put their masks on. We couldn't even <laughs> who know know each other really well both ways. It's amazing. When did you decide to wear masks and, like, go with the pun of uh, gorilla, guerrilla, and gorilla uh, that eats bananas? Well, at that first meeting, we named ourselves Gorilla Girls. We put the posters up, and people wanted to talk to us. The press wanted to talk to us. People in the street, you know, people wanted to talk to us. So what do you do? Well, we have early pictures of our group wearing uh, balaclavas, you know, um, you know, hiding kind of thing. But at one point, we're not sure exactly how it happened, but this is our story, whether it's true or not. One of our members um, early on, we knew we needed a disguise, but what? One of our members early on was just doodling and terrible speller. So instead of Gorilla Girls, she wrote Gorilla Girls, the animal. And we thought, hmm. So we went to some Halloween stores and 
bought a bunch of masks. <laughs> now we're stuck with the damn thing. <laughs> when you look at our masks, you think of what we stand for. And we stand for the conscience of the art world. And we feel that there, there is underrepresentation of women and minorities. And when you see our logo, basically, when you see our face, that's what we stand for. And it's not personal. So it's hot in there. <laughs> I was so this is what I really want to ask. This is a real this is a secret, my ulterior motive. <laughs> a few years ago I had to start doing live shows of this comedy podcast I do called Judge John Hodgman. And I had to decide, I'm the bailiff on the show, I had to decide whether I was gonna wear normal person clothes <laughs> or special bailiff clothes. And I was like, Well, we're putting on a show. I should get some special bailiff clothes. Uh, so I went to the law enforcement supply store and I bought what looked like bailiff clothes to me. They're actually not. Bailiffs turn out to wear Sandy Brown, which <laughs> I didn't think would look that good on stage. I wanted to look like the guy from Night Court. So it's actually a fire department dress uniform. But it, it is, you know, it's got a badge on it and all that. And now I'm stuck with this outfit that I wore. And it made me think, did you as a group at some point decide what kind of gorilla mask you're going to wear and now you're stuck with it? Or have you, <laughs> over the decades, refined your attitude towards gorilla masks and found the perfect gorilla mask? I think the gorilla masks, um, there are less and less gorilla masks. So we started out just buying regular, you know, rubber Halloween things. Um, over the years, probably every three or four years, uh, I think... We should get someone to design a gorilla mask. It could have a better kind of face than just the angry yellow teeth, you know, thing that you buy. And it might last longer. And then I realized if we had, you know, a Hollywood-designed gorilla mask, which I'm sure we could, tons of people would be happy to do that, we'd have to carry everywhere we go. We travel all over the place all the time. We do, you know, 40 exhibitions, 30 talks, you know, performances. <laughs> You'd have to carry a hat box with you. <laughs> or like every... a pelican case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or a yeah, cello case. I don't yeah. know what. And these things, you know, as crappy as they are, they can just be thrown in a suitcase and and off you go. Are but, you ever like at the TSA and they like pull it out and raise one eyebrow like mm, bringing a gorilla mask with you to Mexico City, are you? This has happened to some of us. Um, it hasn't happened to me, but I always carry it in my carry I never would put it in um, luggage in the plane because what if you arrive somewhere and you you know usually you have to hit the ground running you're you know doing something that night a talk a workshop uh you can't be without a gorilla mask in fact i have nightmares that you know the, the typical anxiety nightmare but mine is i arrive somewhere and i can't find my mask <laughs> how sick is that <laughs> I'm just like imagining you standing at the curb outside the Prague airport or whatever. And you get in a cab and you're like trying to explain in your broken version of you're like looking through a phrase book for the phrase, where are your Halloween stores? <laughs> yeah, that happened once. Um, uh, one of our members um, forgot the mask and was they were taken all, all over town. I can't remember the town it was. I always think I'd take a paper bag and draw mask on it. <laughs> I'm glad you've got a backup plan. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be prepared. But, you know, the other thing is we're so lucky to do this work. I mean, I feel that way and and 
And I think everyone does. I mean, a lot of people got burned out and left, you know, couldn't do both. Like, I think of myself as two artists in one body, you know, and one has this collaborative practice and one does the other stuff. And so, you know, people have come in and out over the years and many people just couldn't, didn't want to or just didn't have the time to keep doing it. But for me as a lifer, I would say that I just feel so lucky to do this work. I mean, there's the stuff we've been talking about, all the silly stuff, but there's the immense joy of doing something that means something. You know, we never thought that would happen either, but we know now from the thousands of uh, letters and stuff we get all the time, you know, emails, that this work means something, you know, in its own small little world. It means something to people and they they use us as a model for stepping up about the issues they care about. And that, you know, that compared to another white-walled gallery, it's kind of, it's easy to make the choice to work on the Gorilla Girls forever. <laughs> You'll hear the rest of my talk with Kata Kolvitz of the Gorilla Girls in a bit. When we come back from a quick break, has the work of the Gorilla Girls changed the art world for the better? I'll ask Katja what she thinks. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Squarespace allows small businesses to design and build their own websites using customizable layouts and features including e-commerce functionality and mobile editing. Squarespace also offers built-in search engine optimization to help you develop an online presence. Go to squarespace.com NPR for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I'm Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And together, we host a podcast called Still Buffering, where we answer questions like, Why should I not fall asleep first at a slumber party? How do I be fleet? Is it okay to break up with someone using emojis? And sometimes we talk about bugs. No, we don't. Nope. <laughs> Find out the answers to these important questions and many more on Still Buffering, a sister's guide to teens through the ages. I am a teenager. And... I was two butts, 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 butts. Mitch McConnell has become a champion for conservatives. But back in the day, he once got support from groups like labor unions. I've marked it down as one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. So you thought about it over the years. Oh, I still think about it every time I see his face. Mitch McConnell, a new series from Embedded. Subscribe now. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. The Guerrilla Girls were a groundbreaking anonymous art collective founded in 1985. Together, they draw attention to issues of discrimination and representation in galleries and museums all over the world. They also wear gorilla masks while they do it. My guest is one of the founders of the art collective. She goes by the pseudonym Kata Kolvitz. Let's get back to our interview. Gorilla suits have a lot of advantages, or gorilla masks have a lot of advantages. They're striking. They're broadly available. <laughs> they also, like, uh, people dressed as gorillas particularly, have a like long, fraught history of racial symbolism. 
I wonder at what point in the history of the group you had to kind of like figure out where do we stand on this and and how do we deal with that? Yeah, I mean, we've we have members of color who struggled with that and and also <laughs> uh, members every member kind of struggled with that because when this ha- came up like just like that we weren't really thinking about it but everyone decided uh for better or worse that this was our symbol and there's nothing wrong with being a gorilla you know a proud jungle animal and that's what what we were channeling but i but yes that that is an issue, and it's something that I think everyone has thought long and hard about and not been totally comfortable with, even though we're still wearing these masks and, and even though we decided to go with it. So how did you and have you decided who gets to join the club? People would always just invite friends and um, the funny thing that people don't know about the Gorilla Girls, which I can't get too specific about, is that we've always been pretty small at any one time. There's no way you could do the work that we do with 40 people, 100 people, even 20 people. You know, who's going to agree, especially if you're a bunch of artists and writers and stuff who have, all have, you know, huge opinions that, you know, and find it hard to take other people, love other people's ideas. So... We always ask new people in when we reach, um, you know, a critically low number, and it's it's not it's really done. You know, you meet somebody and you think, wow, this person would be amazing as a as a gorilla girl. So then the time comes, call them up. The gorilla girls have always been engaged in questions of race in addition to questions of uh, gender. Yes, from the very beginning. How has the representation of people of color in the group, to what extent has it reflected America or the art world or the world in general? Yeah, we don't really talk. I, I know it's it's hard to, to um, be anonymous and not talk about that, but we've ha- have and have always had South Asian, African-American, European descent people, Latinx, um, and the group has varied over time. We've never think about percentages in in society. We just want to have as great a group with uh, as much representation as possible. And it's been been 50%, it's like 50% women of color in recent years. You mentioned earlier that um, the group included diversity of gender identity. Mm-hmm. Have there been people who don't identify as women or people who are trans women in the group? Not always, but pretty close to the beginning and a um, little you know, later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of my kids is transgender, as a transgender girl. Mm-hmm. And... I have encountered in unfortunate ways people who identify themselves as feminists who believe that feminist spaces should be only for people who were identified female at birth, basically cisgendered women. 
I don't know if they have a position on trans men who their parents thought were girls when they were born. I had, that doesn't usually come up. And I wonder if that's something that you as a group have ever had to deal with. Well, we would, yes. Um, first of all, we do not believe that in any way. We believe we are a, a women's group still. We started out that way and we still are. But it is anyone who identifies as a woman. That's, that's what it is to us. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm talking with Katja Kolwitz, a founding member of the anonymous political art collective, the Guerrilla Girls. These are uh, things that you tend to address, I'm saying you collectively in like every interview, but I think they are, uh, there's a reason that they are addressed in every interview. You said you picked the name Guerrilla Girls at the first meeting. There must have been, if not then, then at least since discussion of the question of whether using girls rather than women, presumably because it sounded cool uh, or fun, was infantilizing or something like that. It w- was that the case? Is you ever like? It was the opposite. The whole idea was to use girls, and we had to convince some of the people. The people for it had to convince some of the people to go with it. We wanted to telegraph that we were different, not your. I mean, there's no usual feminist group, but, you know, we want it to be not run-of-the-mill Or not feminist. what people imagined, at yeah, least. Yeah, not what people expected. So girls was an important part of that. And that was before girl power and all that kind of stuff. We wanted to use that. We wanted to take on that, world, that word that grown women were called, you know, by, until they were dead. Okay, girls, let's do this, let's do that. We wanted to take that on and and own it. And the whole girl power thing later, you know, riot girls, um, everything, it did change. The idea of using, not due to us, but we we felt that uh, in 1985, the way people felt it in the 90s and the way people feel it now. Do you feel like the world is different in some way now than it was 30 years ago. There's like a relatively famous work that you did, I guess. I guess it must have been maybe 10 years ago now, because I think it was like a 20-year retrospective that was the number of solo shows by women in uh, the big art museums in New York. And I believe the totals in the mid or late 1980s were like 0001 or something. And the totals... 20 years later were 1, 1, 2, and 1. 30 years later. 30 years later. Yeah, Thank for you. Our, we had a big birthday party in New York in 2015, which was our 30th anniversary. And we wanted to do a whole bunch of new stuff for it. And the main thing that we did was this campaign about income inequality and billionaires controlling art. Uh, we're still doing a lot of stuff about income inequality. But in addition to that, we decided to revisit two of our very early things. And one was that poster you just talked about, these museums, you know, how many women had solo shows in museums. And the other one was um, our, these were like our first three posters. Uh, The one, like the one about the artists we talked about, but about galleries. These galleries show less than 10% women artists or none at all. So we did the stats and um, yeah, the galleries had gotten better. And um, the museums were not that much better. 
And of course, they were all totally annoyed because we used one year. It was always one. It was 1985 and 2015, so we, or 14, you know, 84 and 14, whatever. We used one year, and they're all, oh, well, that just happened to be a year where we had, you know, all white men, and we said, right, <laughs> you know, maybe you should, you know, not do that. Any year, you know, you should be, I mean, we've always done a critique of museums from the very beginning and other art institutions. It's so crucially important. If museums continue to have, and we're talking modern and contemporary museums, continue to have, you know, 90% or uh, 70% work by white male artists, this doesn't say anything about those artists, but it says something about the system. And a hundred years from now, you know, you and I are sitting somewhere because we will live forever, and um, we're saying, "Is this the pic?" They're showing art from our era, and that's what it is. You have to wonder. That's not the story of our culture. We have an incredibly diverse culture. Not everyone could be an art star or a music star or this, but the work that's being done is pushing so many ideas forward, both in the arts and in society. And that is art's function, is always to go further, push further. And museums have to cast a wider net and um, make sure they have that stuff. Well, thank you so much for your work that has made me think about things and laugh about things and is often good-looking, aesthetically appealing. Thanks for all the things about your work, and thanks for coming to be on the show. It was uh, so nice to sort of meet you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jesse. It was really great, and good luck with your work, too. Kata Kolvitz of The Gorilla Girls. You can find images and video of their work all over the internet. We'll have a link to their official website on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. If you live in New York, some work from the Gorilla Girls is currently on display at the Gracie Mansion in Manhattan. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park, beautiful Los Angeles, California, where someone brought in a bunch of fresh squares of sod for a patch of dirt over by the lake, but it was only enough sod to cover maybe like half of the dirt patch, so it looks sort of like a game of Tetris down there. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJ W, the great Dan Wally. Thanks to him for sharing it with us. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before you go, there are so many past episodes of this show. You can find them on our website, MaximumFun.org. You can also find them on YouTube just by searching for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. If you only search for Bullseye, you get like... Uh, an EDM hit from like five or ten years ago, so don't. So you have to add the Jesse Thorne part. Uh, we are also on Twitter at Bullseye, and uh, also on Facebook at Facebook.com/slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. So be sure to like us there. And that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. 
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.